You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, Deepening Your Practice. It's April 29th, 2021. Uh, 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And uh, tonight, what I wanted to talk about was really what the end goal of practice is and what gets in the way of that, and then what do you do about that? Uh, You might say that the end goal of practice is so that you can see things clearly and respond to them and not uh, cling or get uh, trapped by attachment to anything. Uh, Dan Brown, one of my teachers says that what, where you want to get to is a place where you can experience everything, but you experience experience it like writing on water. You take everything in, you're, you're present for it, you see what's happening, you don't cling to anything. Everything arises and passes. You're completely present to the experience of that and that there's no clinging. Um, Then what we would need to look at is what gets in the way of being able to be in that place where that's what's happening. And we begin to talk about uh, conditioning or conditioned responses to what happens. And then a kind of grabbiness or a a stickiness that arises uh, in all of these sense formations that pulls us out of the experiencing of the present moment in this endless flow of energy. Um, Maybe looking at the way that we take that sensing experience and and the creation of conceptual reality is a good place to start. We have our capacity to sense depending on our capacities. We have that, typical five senses. If you have all of those senses, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and then you have mind. Mind often is a conditioned response that selects things that uh, have a high value to us so that it isn't a complete survey of what's happening uh, and it isn't a random survey of what's happening. It's a conditioned response to things that Uh, we prefer to experience, and that's where, uh, what our mind pays attention to. Uh, The untrained mind, of course, just does that without even noticing it. And then part of this uh, undertaking, this training would be to train yourself out of that so that the mind doesn't just select things that you're conditioned to prefer uh, over what's happening. I say what's happening because we don't necessarily create the the perception of what's happening. We create the perception of what's meaningful to us or what we prefer uh, and then uh, leave out everything that we we haven't uh, been willing or had time to include in the way that we form things. So you have the object that can be sensed, the capacity to sense it, a consciousness of the sensing experience arises. It's evaluated for processing speed 
needs urgent attention, doesn't really matter, pleasant at their time. If there's time, the, the science on this is pretty good, the brain science in terms of timing. Urgent stuff is processed in three eighths of a second. Almost everything doesn't matter, so it's never processed. And then pleasant experience takes half a second to process. And pleasant experience needs to be uh, twice the intensity and twice the duration of a stimulus in order to get the body-mind to react to it. So something that's urgent or negative, half the intensity, half the duration. Consciousness itself, uh, the, the, the experience that we have of the present moment that we know through really a self-experience or through awareness, is a half a second behind what's actually happening because it takes that long to generate the experience. So we all in some sense live in this illusion that we're experiencing what's happening now when in fact we're experiencing what happened a half a second ago. In sports parlance, they call it playing in the zone. If you're not in the zone, you can't play. And the reason you can't play is that if you're playing tennis, and you're consciously having to choose to swing at the ball, it already went by a half a second ago, so you can't hit it, hit it. But if you're just flowing in the experience of the game, then you can hit it, and then the experience of hitting it follows you actually having hit it, that making sense. One of the things about Western people in particular is the education that we have in terms of seeing and what seeing means. I know. I tend to hit this pretty hard, um, but uh, I'm fascinated by this uh, process. The Pali word for it is uh, Tajgnati. Uh, Taja means constantly going back and evaluating, and Gnati means conceptual reality. So where we want to get to is this constantly moving back and forth between what we're sensing, the pure unfixated sensing experience, and then touch into what we've made out of it. It may also be that I'm, I'm just finishing a book on this subject, so it's in my mind. Uh, but um, we take in the sensing experience in these five sense gates and mind. So in traditional ways of describing that, I consciousness is the pure sensing experience and I mind consciousness is what we make it into. So I consciousness sees light and form and I mind consciousness, uh, I'm looking at a chair with a stack of books on it. They're different. And so we want to be uh, free to experience each of them. Because of this lag, most of the time, a conceptual reality comes into consciousness fully formed. And so we have to kind of reverse engineer it. The other thing about it is that uh, the body has the capacity for various kinds of perception uh, in addition to just the, the uh, pure sensing experience. Uh, when I uh, was talking about this, uh, the object that can be sensed, the capacity to sense when they meet contact arises and then it's evaluated for processing speed. That's called Vedna. Um, and Vedna can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. I, I like to say urgent, doesn't matter, and pleasant. 
but the body has the capacity for all of those, whereas uh, seeing, hearing, tasting, and smelling, uh, it's pretty much always neutral in terms of Vedna. There's an additional uh, consideration for Vedna, which is pressure. So when we say that, we, that we're experiencing unpleasant seeing experience, it's usually the pressure. Or when we're saying we experience unpleasant hearing, it's usually the pressure. So the noise is too loud, so it hurts the ears, but that's actually the aspect of pressure or loudness. The light is too bright and it hurts our eyes, but that's actually the brightness of the, of the light, not the, the uh, sensing of the light itself. Um, same with tasting and smelling. So the capacity to sense meets the object that can be sensed. A consciousness of the sensing experience arises. It's evaluated for vedna or feeling tone or processing speed and then it's compared to the perceptual database. Uh, Upanyata is the Hollywood that. And in that database are all of the entries of previously sensed things and what we made them into. In addition to that is the intention and the action that we took and also the results of that action. All of that is in uh, the database when the undifferentiated sensing experience is compared to the database and the database attaches to it, uh, what comes with that, of course, is the intention of how to respond to it, the outcome, so sorry, the intention to how, of how to respond, the action that we might take, and then as that unfolds, we record what happens. In the West, going back to Aristotle, who, who thought and taught that what's out there we see in a fairly neutral way and then create a working model of that internally. Epicurus was uh, later and he reasoned that it's not a direct translation of what's out there inter internally. If you have strong emotion, then that can affect it. Uh, you change the way that you perceive it. And then with Plato, he reasoned that we have preferences for things. And so our preferences affect how we take in information, but that it's still coming from out there into us internally. And that we do, do have a tendency to take in everything that's out there and, and work with that kind of uh, structure and understanding. This is very different than the Buddhist idea of taking in the raw sensing data, processing it internally, creating a, a, a perception of what's happening and then projecting that outward. And then living in this experience of what's out there. So really when we talk about meditation and, and coming into these places of uh, a deep insight and really understanding the nature of what's happening. Uh, we're talking about seeing how we take in the sensing experience, how we process it, what we make it into, and then 
project outward. If you can begin to investigate how you might affect that or distort that process, then you can begin to see the difference between what's actually there and what we uh, make it into based on our preferences or conditioning. Do you like strawberries? How do you know that you like strawberries? If you like strawberries and you go into the supermarket and there's a giant mound of strawberries, how do you react to that? If you're indifferent to strawberries, is the reaction to that different? If you don't like strawberries, how do you react to that? The strawberry is the same in all of those cases, right? So it's not an inherent uh, experience of strawberries. Of course, if you don't mentalize it very well, you might think that your experience of really loving strawberries is a universal experience and that everybody really loves strawberries, but that actually is probably not the case. Um, those big Californias, I live in California and uh, we, we used to have berry season, but now berry season is all year, kind of like fire season. <laughs> <laughs> giant, plump, glossy, uh, delicious looking strawberries. But when you take a bite out of them, they're, they're not, the taste is very subtle. Often. When we were in Myanmar, the strawberries were these uh, little tiny things and they were sort of oddly shaped for a strawberry. All the, all the strawberries were slightly different in shape. There wasn't that uniformity. uniformity, And uh, they were uh, uh, not that brilliant red. But when you took a bite of them, this little tiny thing, the blast of strawberry flavor was really uh, eye-opening and delicious. And, and, uh... The problem, of course, when you're traveling and you haven't developed a, a I like to call it the fauna and flora in your intestinal system that you need in order to be able to tolerate uh, the uh, bacteria that can come along with eating food and cause uh, you know, extreme intestinal distress. Uh, after you've had a strawberry or two and then had an experience of intestinal distress that followed it, suddenly you have this other kind of relationship. You see the strawberry, it looks absolutely fantastic. Uh, and you're, you have a sense of the flavor that it might be with that, of course, the apprehension about um, whether the, the, the bacteria will get you or not. <coughs> so you can see as we are conditioned into these things that, that it affects the response that we have in the way that we make the experience of these things happen for ourselves. And how much do you cling and hold on to and grip the experience? Do you prefer something so much that uh, one day begin to pass away? You are bothered by that? Are you aversive to something so much that when they arise, you are bothered by that? 
you need to have a constant source of stimulus, a constant source of entertainment, so that if, if the level of stimulus falls away, that that also bothers you. One of the things about uh, living in a city like I do uh, and uh, the constant uh, back and forth and stimulus as much as you wanted whenever you wanted, that when the pandemic hit, there was almost a kind of withdrawal from that intensity of stimulus that was uh, confining. Uh, even though really all that was required is that you stay home and wait out the virus, uh, there was a kind of uh, discomfort that arose and the disconnection from the stimulus of the world, not to mention the uh, disconnection from the uh, uh, relationships, the emotional relationships that tend to fill a life if you um, can make those kinds of experiences work. There's a richness to that, that actual, the physicality of other human beings that you can be close to and, and uh, comforted by, that uh, in the, the uh, pandemic, uh, everybody becomes a source of danger uh, if uh, they're infected or not. And then now, of course, uh, in, in Los Angeles, where we have managed as a city to really get the, uh, the rate of infection low and, and made a huge effort to vaccinate people, that uh, there's now this sense of opening. Our governor has said that <coughs> June 15th, we're just gonna open up because we have it enough in hand. I was talking to one of my students who was, who's in Madrid and uh, he said that they're five months away from beginning the vaccination process. And so they don't have that sense at all of safety. And everything is in a hard lockdown and they're actually going into a harder lockdown rather than apparently May 15th, they're going into a much harder lockdown. So part of this, of course, in, in terms of uh, what we're talking about here, which is practice, is how can you come into this place where you're so embedded in the present moment, uh, experiencing uh, the, um, the arising and passing and sensing and experience in the process of what you make all of that into, that you can be just in that uh, that immediate flow of arising and passing, that immediate flow of discernment and letting go without clinging to anything. And uh, then paying attention to these areas that, that you get tied in or you get stuck in. So that's uh, how to aim the practice in a way. I like to talk about it uh, in terms of uh, mentalizing. Sometimes these uh, ideas that were developed in Western psychology, uh, I think are useful as a way to describe this. It's quite different than the 
the poetry of uh, early Buddhist writings, and it's quite different than the kind of monk speak. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it's effective in communicating this is because we are largely conditioned to understand things in these terms because it's how our culture operates. And so, uh, and also paying attention to what happens when you practice in certain ways. The way uh, practice works is you do a particular investigation in a particular uh, form of meditation. And then what comes from that particular kind of practice are insights that are associated to that kind of practice. And so uh, with the big, uh, the big three lineages, the Theravada, the Zen, and the, the Vajrayana, or the Tibetan practices, the way that uh, practice is organized and what techniques that you actually do produce these uh, sort of predictable outcomes. Um, we have our Theravada map, which we use, uh, which is based on this four path model of enlightenment, which is quite different than the Theravada, sorry, the Vajrayana path. Um, I study with Dan who teaches in Vime, which is a, one of the, uh, uh, sublineages of the bond tradition. Um, and I like it because it's, a, it's called the pointing out the great way uh, tradition. I like a lot of instructions and a lot of explanation because that matches my learning style better. One of the reasons why Shinzen Young, uh, the, the, the Vipassana teacher, Theravada teacher was appealing because he gives a lot of instructions and things are quite clear. It's easier for me to follow. But when I first went to sit with Dan, I was uh, I had not really sat with a, a Vajrayana teacher before. And I was really excited by the idea that there would be this perspective that was completely different than the Theravada perspective and it would help me see things clear and I came back from that retreat and really for weeks afterwards, I was just disappointed by how similar they were. So uh, we call that the, the many facets of the jewel, but we're really trying to see the same thing. One of the reasons I like Rime is because it's, uh, Dan calls it the greatest hits of uh, Tibetan Buddhism where they select meditation strategies from all of the lineages uh, based on which one they think is the most effective in illustrating the insight that they uh, want you to have so that you can uh, move toward this place of really being able to inhabit the experience of the present moment and be in this flow of arising and passing and not clinging to anything. If you then begin to consider the obscurations or the things that cause you to be unable to see what that is. Uh, then uh, focusing uh, meditation techniques on that, that you can open each of these insights up and then really take them in and in seeing clearly change the way that you perceive things. One of the things that Vipassana meditation does really well is uh, support uh, mentalizing or metacognition. And so we have these dimensions. This really comes from the work of 
of Peter Fanaki and Anthony Bateman, the spontaneous versus monitoring aspect of mentalizing. Um, so you're sitting in meditation, of course, you're watching something happen. That's the monitoring aspect. The spontaneity aspect is, a, is that you just allow it to happen without interfering. This is an important thing to be able to do. You get swept too much on the spontaneous side. Of course, you get caught up in the content and you lose the monitoring, you lose the meditation. But if you get swept over too hard onto the monitoring side, then uh, you uh, interfere with the spontaneous flow of experience. So we're going to focus mainly on this aspect of mentalizing tonight, allowing the body-mind to completely respond without inhibition, without interfering in it, and then at the same time being able to monitor the whole thing without losing the capacity to monitor. Another aspect of that mentalizing is self versus other. We talk a lot about the self experience in Buddhism, often in, in terms of a duality that it creates. The sense of self arises and we take on this mantle of ownership, of doing, of controlling, of making, and then the experience of sensing separates and we see the world as separate from the activity of the self, even though they're the same activity. That sensing the self is like sensing any other experience. But when we don't see that clearly, we have this uh, sense that there's some intrinsic, solid, ongoing, separate activity which is different from the sensing experience so that the, the separate self can experience a separate sensing experience, even though it's the same experience when you see it clearly. And the Satipadana Sutta over and over again, it says the refrain in the refrain, mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, mindfulness of inside and outside. And what you begin to notice is that one sensing experience can uh, trigger the activation of an additional sensing experience. And that there's this uh, response of, of this constant, almost popcorn effect of sensing experiences going on one after the other. And so we want to really see all of that, that, uh, that uh, sense of, Conditionality is uh, one of the uh, terms in Theravada Buddhism. The present moment sets up the possibility for the next moment. Uh, we choose and the next moment unfolds and sets up the possibility for the next moment. You could use a quantum mechanics metaphor for this, that every possibility is open in front of you in this moment. But as soon as you pick one, what you, what you picked is left and everything else falls away. But that opens into the next moment of all of the possibilities that are available to you based on your choice in the last one. But as soon as you pick something, everything except what you picked falls away and you open into the next moment 
where all of the possibilities that were linked to the choice that you've just made open up. That may be a, a different set than three choices ago and what might have opened up there. So making this understanding of this is the self-experience and that's the world and they're connected, internal and external. In um, Shinzen's uh, a way of describing practice, this becomes the focus in, focus out, investigation, the exterior space and the perception there, and then the internal interior space. And then the last one is cognitive versus effective, so thinking versus emotion, auditory and visual experience versus uh, the emotional experience. In Buddhist thought, of course, uh, thought contains emotion. It's in the West that we've divided that and made reason preferable to emotion, even though evolutionarily the emotion uh, probably came much earlier than the reason came. And then also you notice in stressful situations, it isn't the emotional response that goes, it's the capacity to reason that goes. Stress has a sort of a, a reverse proportional response to your cognitive mind, your cognitive abilities, your thinking. You go lower and lower to the brain, uh, out of the mammalian brain, uh, into the reptilian brain, into the worm brain, uh, just respond. So tonight, what I thought we would do is uh, track the experience of the present moment from the experience of thinking using a simple technique and orienting ourselves just to one sense gate so it's easier to track that. If you've sat with me for a while, uh, you'll know that what I'm describing is the meditation strategy of investigating self-generated emotion. So tracking a quiet mind, tracking one-off thoughts that just come and go and tracking uh, repeating thoughts or the thinking process. One of the things to notice about this is that the mind can be quiet because there's not a lot of stimulus going on or it can be quiet because you're too rigid in your monitoring so that you shut down the spontaneous aspect of uh, experience. We want to be both freely spontaneous and at the same time monitoring it. So this uh, class is called meditation and attachment. And so what you notice in different patterns of attachment experience is different patterns in the mentalizing structure. People who are preoccupied in their attachment strategy tend to be very spontaneous but they tend to lack monitoring. And what can happen when you do that is that your spontaneous reactivity can overrun other people's boundaries, other people's preferences, but because you're not monitoring it, you don't notice that that's what's happening. And it could cause disruption in relationships and you don't even see that that's happening because you're not paying attention. If you tend to be dismissing in your attachment strategy, then it's the reverse. You tend to be uh, rigid in your monitoring and control of what's happening. 
And that shuts down the spontaneity. In a sense, secure people operate with this back and forth, this easy, spontaneous and monitoring. If everything has to be filtered through monitoring, everything has to be filtered through a sense of self. So it becomes this rigid and controlling experience for other people, which can be quite off-putting. So what I want you to begin to do is be able to tell that these things are happening, that these mind states are arising. The Buddha described this, I think, very well in uh, talking about it in these traditional uh, mind states is the mind equanimous and therefore clear. And then what you're experiencing is an undistorted uh, uh, picture of what's actually happening or is the mind filled with lust or craving? He used the metaphor of a bowl, a mirror. Uh, 2,600 years ago, a mirror was a dark glazed bowl filled with water and you, you saw reflected off the surface of that water, a picture of the world. I think that this is an important metaphor. We don't experience things directly. We experience them as a reflection of mind. And depending on the, the condition of the mind, the, the image that comes off the surface of it can be accurate or quite distorted. But if you can't tell the difference between a mind that's equanimous and a mind that is inclined toward distortion, then the reflection off the surface of the mind uh, becomes compelling and believable and that we make our intention and take our action. But we take it from a distorted place so the action is out of sync with what's actually happening, which can create these streams of negative karma. The mind is filled with lust. It's as if the water were dyed a bright color. So everything seems incredibly vivid, and saturated. The mind is filled with anger. It's as if the water were boiling. Have you ever tried to see the reflection of the world through a pot of boiling water? It's very uh, distorted. The mind is filled with sloth and torpor, as if algae had grown across it. If the mind is filled with restless agitation, as if a breeze were blowing across it. The mind is filled with skeptical doubt, it's as if the water were muddy. And then, then I would say, if the mind is filled with Preoccupation, how does it distort the perception of what's happening? If the mind is dismissing, how does that change things? If the mind is disorganized, how does that change the perception? And then what do you do to bring the mind back into balance so that you can actually see what's happening and be in this flow of arising and passing, knowing what's actually happening but not clinging to anything like writing on water. Maybe you've had glimpses of that particular mind state. Uh, lively awareness or awakened awareness might be a way of talking about it. You've had glimpses of it or uh, uh, Shinzen uh, will say a taste of liberation. So then you also understand how ordinary that is. 
the metaphor that Dan uses, of course, is that the sun is shining and it shines on everything. But if clouds are in the way, if obscurations are in the way, you can't see the sun. Does it mean that the sun isn't there or simply that the obscurations have uh, clouded your ability to see it temporarily? And then we need to be able to recognize what those obscurations are to have some agency in removing them. Maybe another way to put it would be that uh, once you figure out what one of these mind states is, this uh, lively uh, awakened awareness, how do you cause it to arise? And then how do you stabilize it so you're continuously experiencing? Then if you could do that, then what you could say about you is that you've stabilized the awakened awareness so that you're enlightened or you've stabilized the, the taste of liberation. You're enlightened, which is coming back to the beginning of this talk, the goal of practice or the end of practice to get into this place. So, I want you to begin to pay attention to this spontaneous versus monitoring or controlled uh, capacity to mentalize using this technique of evaluating thoughts. Uh, is the mind quiet? Is the mind engaged in thinking a one-off thought that comes and goes? Or is the mind engaged in a perseverating thought that takes you out of the present moment into the past or the future. That's typically what repeating thoughts do. We worry about the future. And so the mind uh, thinks uh, over and over again about what might happen. Uh, the mind gets lost in the past, ruminating about something that might have happened. And in the beginning, it's simple. You just need to be able to tell those apart without getting pulled into the content of, of thought and losing the meditation. So we're gonna anchor our attention in auditory thinking space and simply monitor whether the mind is quiet, whether it's engaged in one-off thought, or whether it's engaged in a repeating thought. And because we're householders and uh, it's the end of the day for many of us, there's a, uh, likely to be a sense of fatigue from that We'll begin with a few minutes of breath counting, counting from one to 10 back down to one on the out breath, only to gather the mind and then go into the uh, experience of tracking thought uh, in auditory space. Uh, any questions about the technique before we begin? So go ahead and take your meditation posture. So any comments or questions about what we just did? Christian? I had a pretty interesting set. I think I was kind of in a hypnagogic state a little bit. Um, you know, in um, the old Batman, how they'd get like a message from the Riddler and then Batman would sort of read the message and then free associate like a string of words until he somehow solved the Riddler's riddle. I kind of had that where I somehow I got the. Just I don't, I mean, I sort of remember Adam West 
uh, yeah that's the on one tv but that's um, how long ago that was <laughs> yeah it's kind of like just surfing through and clicking random wikipedia links until you're like you're in some weird conspiracy theory link or something uh-huh and then so that seemed very spontaneous and then i would i caught myself somewhere i think i was at i wonder what's in I wonder if there's something special in in baby blood that like corporations are gonna monetize. And then I realized how absurd it was and then it became very controlled. And then I started thinking about how I was gonna explain it. And so it kind of became meta and then that seemed very controlled. And then I would get sort of lost in that chain of fantasy. So I'd kind of bounce back between the spontaneous and the controlled is how I understood it. So good. Um, so you're just getting to play with the controls. I think so. Good. Someone else? All right. Um, thank you all for coming and your, for your practice. Um, we have a couple of slots left in the new level two that's starting in May. If that's something that's interesting you, you take a look at the website. Uh, we will have a, a retreat in June. It's a virtual retreat, also up on the website. In July, we're going to begin a series of level one a day long. So there'll be four of those in July and August. In September, uh, we're going to start another level two. And then uh, in, the, in uh, December, we'll have a, our year-end retreat. I'm not sure whether it will be uh, an actual retreat or a remote retreat. It'll depend on how the pandemic is going. So all of that stuff is on the website. That's what's coming up. I teach my beginners class on Tuesday and this class on Thursday. I offer the teacher the teaching freely, but I do hope that you'll support me and um, the work that Metagroup is doing by making a donation. There's a link for that on the website and also in an email you might have gotten about the class. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I hope to see you soon on the path. Bye now. Thanks, Brian. Yeah.